This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605, where the guest this time is you and me. I thought we'd wrap up this first season of History 605 with a review of how far we've come since we launched the podcast last July. I would say, like many of the projects that I've started in life, I didn't know what would become of this one. I didn't know if people would want to come on the show or not to get guests. I didn't know how hard that would be. I didn't know if the production would work, if the distribution of the episodes would work, nor if people would listen. But here we are at the end of season one, and we're going to do season two. Thanks to the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation for sponsoring these episodes and to South Dakota Public Broadcasting for doing all the great things they do to get this to you. Over the course of the season, we spoke to historians, to writers, to political scientists, political campaign professionals, a former Supreme Court justice, an English professor, a filmmaker, a tribal historian, and a paleogeneticist. I didn't know what a paleogeneticist was, but um, I got to learn about that uh, during this, this first season. Uh, our guests were from mostly from South Dakota, but they also, we also had guests from Kansas, from New Mexico, Oklahoma, New York, Minnesota, Colorado, a couple from Virginia, and one from Ontario, Canada. In fact, we had award-winning guests on the show, Gary Anderson and Philip Burnham, and Gary Boychuk have all won awards for their writing. We also helped bring some rookies into the history business, like Justin Blessinger of Dakota State and Paul Wilson, uh, accomplished at uh, what they've been doing, for sure, for their professional career. But this was their first uh, foray into historical research and writing. And uh, they really produced some great work. Uh, Justin Blessinger's episode is the one on General Beadle. And Paul Wilson's episode is the one on uh, Governor Mickelson and the campaign in 1986. We discussed how these guests thought historically about evidence that they found in the archives, in diaries, in newspapers, in oral histories and interviews, in government records, in cultural heritage sites, in archaeological records, as well as in books written by others. And in the first episode, uh, if you might recall, I talked briefly about how one thinks about history. In fact, just as there is a scientific method, there is a historical method about how one evaluates the past. First, you ask a question. Then, you find all the relevant evidence you can. Then you try to put it into a story that will be recognizable to the people who experienced that event, but still understandable to audiences today. And sometimes making that bridge between wide swaths of time can be quite a challenge. There are certainly different theoretical frames from which you could propose a hypothesis about an event, but that is largely social science. It's not a historical method. And while using certain theories for specialized issues, uh, one needs to be aware that theories often bake bias into the answer that you get. My own view is that it's best to let the evidence speak for itself based on the question that you're asking. So we focused on uh, historical questions with the guests that we had on the show and dug into the evidence 
and learned a wide variety of surprising things, including how new evidence can push up a new question, such as this comment in episode three. And how much debate might a a tribe like the Comanche or the Cheyenne have about whether they should take on the, the horse into their lifestyle, or was that just something that neighbors were doing? Because there are tribes that do, do not take on the horse. And that's exactly back. right. And so how that's do you exactly compare, right. say, the Mandan to the Lakota in that regard? Or, say, the Pawnee, who, who famously do, they, they, they acquire horses, as do the Mandan, but they don't give up their villages in river valleys in the Great Plains where they're planting corn and beans and squash and sunflowers. They just combine the horse and now hunting bison from horseback with uh, those agricultural villages. Whereas other groups such as the Cheyenne or the Lakota had been uh, agricultural societies and gave that up. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's clear that this is not a transformation that happens right away. It happens over a couple of generations. And embedded in the folk tales of some of these groups, you can clearly see that this was not an easy transformation to make. I mean, the reason why these groups had combined hunting with agriculture is that that provides more subsistence security. So giving up those sedentary villages is a big step to make. We may have pulled down some myths, such as George Armstrong Custer was some kind of maniacal fool, such as what uh, Sandy Bernard mentioned in episode four. Uh, What are the myths that you've had to contend with about Custer the man? Not the battles necessarily, but as this is a biography, what are the common notions about him that are just plain mistaken? As with most human beings, George Custer was both a uh, positive individual and a negative individual. He had his flaws, of course. And somehow, by being defeated in his last battle, uh, losing his a good part of his command and all, uh, and in fact, losing that battle against Native Americans, that battle has tended to dominate his historical record in his career, uh, as if he were some kind of uh, fool. And that's really not the case, especially when you look at the man for his entire career. He was... Uh, one of the the best generals, actually, as a cavalry officer during the Civil War. And even though he graduated last in his class, Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't really matter once a man is on the battlefield. Or when historian Kurt Kemper asked questions, and unfortunately the evidence just wasn't available to produce an answer to that question, so he went on to something else. And here... Professor Kemper explains that in episode 18. Well, I was fascinated about the the team in 1958 at USD that won the national championship. The Basically, the meat of that team was two brothers, black kids from Brooklyn, New York. Wow. And so the question has always been, how did two black kids from Brooklyn end up in Vermilion? Um, and they weren't marginal. The older brother, Cliff Daniels, was the Metro Player of the Year in, in the mid-1950s when he graduated from high school in New York. So the thing that that struck me in in 1951, as fans of college basketball probably will know, there was a massive gambling scandal, mostly around Madison Square Garden. It was a point-shaving scandal. They got players to throw some points. 
it never involved throwing games. It was just making sure the gamblers were able to cover the point spread. And it involved multiple campuses. Um, it was a you know front page of the New York Times. It ensnared, among other things, the National Player of the Year. It was a huge controversy. And most of the players who were um, basically you know found to have been involved were white. But those who fell into the criminal justice system, the majority of those who were given um, you know prison time were black. Hmm. And so one of the things that came out of this was an assertion by one of the uh, chroniclers of this scandal who is a, who's not a professional academic but who's written a lot of books and is a big, big follower of, of hoops in New York City. He asserted that this really calmed college coaches' willingness to recruit black kids for a, a generation in college sports because it was presumed they were going to be more susceptible to, you know, these unethical sort of under, you know, underworld kind of characters. So my immediate question is, is this basically, you know, how somebody of the Daniels brothers talent ended up in Vermilion? Um, I never did find any linkage of that whatsoever. Um, but I, I struggled um, right after I managed to make contact with the head basketball coach at USD, um, he passed away, oh. uh, and the Daniels brothers were not interested in being interviewed at length, so I, I really sort of ran into a dead end in that. We also talked about when new sources come to light and teamed up with solid understandings of the people that you're researching, you can reveal something new and important by making some well-informed assertions, such as when Gary Boychuk does about Governor Norbeck and Mamie Pyle, regarding uh, the women's ballot issue and women's voting in the 1918 uh, November general election. Here's Gary Boychuk uh, discussing that from his uh, conversation with me. And this is nowhere, I've never seen this anywhere in any published historical record. Um, so I, I really do believe it's novel. Mm -hmm. In June, um, uh, Shields Pyle notes in a letter to, to Renee Stevens from the National American Women's Suffrage Association that Governor Norbeck unexpectedly on a Tuesday afternoon dropped in to the SDUFL offices to meet with, with uh, Mamie Shields Pyle. Right. Now, no one knows what they talked about at that meeting. Uh -huh. But what we do know is that that day, she sends out a series of letters to um, Mitchell Palmer in the federal government, um, to uh, Dwayne uh, Robinson, mm. um, who, as the as the um, my predecessor. I believe he was the state historian. <laughs> yes. So your pre predecessor, asking a series of questions about and. Um, aliens, non-citizens voting, numbers, what could be done about it. And it is very, very hard to believe that that, wasn't, that, that was just coincidence. Right. It looks very clearly that she, that she unexpectedly met with the governor. He stopped in. And, and my guess would be probably made these suggestions because it's not even clear how, um, how Pyle would know, for example, to contact Mitchell Palmer and the federal government um, oh, right. in the first instance. Right. We also learned about how historical research methods and points of view can change, but that it shouldn't be abused for other purposes 
other than to explain the past to people today with the voices of yesterday. Let it be finally remembered that accounts that are designed to vilify or honor the actions of men and women who are undeserving of either only compound the problem associated with facing our past. Both history and biography are often a complex mixture of factual assessment and supposition, but if written objectively, it could never be a part of a political agenda. And along the way, discovered that a candidate can come from behind in South Dakota politics by, well, calf pulling, of all things. Show up at this one farm, and we sweep out the barn, and we help the farmer, you know, hook up equipment. And then one of the farmhands comes and says, hey, uh, they're birthing this calf. Uh, do you want to be a part of it? And so we take Mickelson over. We, you know, we have the camera there, and we say, go ahead and pull the calf. And wow. that's, uh, that's a phrase, which means grab the hind legs as the calf is being born and pull. And uh, so that's, they call it calf pulling. And that's what Mickelson did. And so he burst this calf and we decided to put it into a commercial on TV. And of course it was, as you might suspect, a pretty gross, (laughs) a pretty gross happening. Yeah. As uh, Mickelson grabs the calf's legs, pulls, the calf is born successfully and struggles to its feet. And, uh, of course, it's the talk of the town. You know, you only needed to see it once before you, uh, you know, wanted, wanted to talk about it. And uh, so that's how we got in the game. I put in a note here, a lot of this is produced over large uh, deals of work by these authors and historians and researchers and so forth. Not all of it, but much of it in archives. And, of course... Over this past COVID epidemic, researching in archives has been uh, tremendously impacted due to the fact that many archives around the country have been closed uh, in many cases for more than um, a year or, or maybe even two years. The implications of this are hard to know, except for if you had a going research project, if you're a graduate student or a historian working on something, or maybe you're a filmmaker wanting to get into the archives to get some records about certain things. Well, all of that work is at a standstill. Uh, it may come as a shock to people, but not all human information and certainly not all human knowledge is on the Internet. Much of it is still in documents or in other things like um, archaeological records that are maintained in libraries and collections around the country. For our second season, we are lining up a really great one. We've got episodes percolating about German newspapers in South Dakota, an episode on President Grant's American Indian policy and his attempts uh, to improve their lives. We've got an episode coming on the Rapid City Flood. It'll be the 50th anniversary this summer, and we have an episode coming on that. We're going to do an episode on Lakota histories, on what they call the winter counts. We have an episode on railroads. Railroads play a big part in American history and certainly in South Dakota history. We have an episode coming on the Pine Ridge uh, politics from the 1930s to the 70s. And we'll also have some episodes coming, comparing history with how Hollywood depicts history. And we're going to have some fun with those. We'll start season two on May 2nd. 
We're taking a bit of a break during the month of April, but we hope that you'll tell your friends about us, maybe binge some of the episodes you missed, rate us on whatever platform you find us, and get ready for some listening again to new episodes coming soon. Again, on May 2nd, we'll have the beginning of Season 2. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. <laughs>